Hello there and welcome to another episode of Ruben's podcast, a show in which I talk to people about their life over the last decade and the lessons they've learned along the way. On today's show I'm speaking with Edwin. I met Edwin back in 2012 in university and through this conversation we chat about his career in music and theater. He tells me about his experience being a part of Beauty and the Beast, one of Disney's first theater productions in India, moving to the US to be a part of the opera and the company he's working on these days. So let's get into the conversation. Getting awesome. We are live. Edwin, thanks a ton for taking time to do this, man. <laughs> thanks so much for inviting me, Ruben. This is fun. Where in the world are you today? I am in New York, New York in uh, West 24th Street in New York City. Where, where is West 24th? Is that Uh it's in it, it's in this neighborhood called Chelsea. Oh, Chelsea. Uh, okay. Yeah, so I'm like a 10 minute walk from Penn Station, uh the Whitney Museum, things like that. And how long have you been in 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 New York? I've been in Chelsea uh, only very recently. I moved uh in December, so it's been about what 3 months now. I moved from New Haven, Connecticut, which is just like 2 hours from where I am right now. And and New York, I think now it's getting better post pandemic, right? I heard New York was quite the ghost town a few months ago. Oh, I mean it's like relatively it's it's still a ghost town I suppose, but I've I've been in and out of the city for the last 2 years like very often. So, uh uh I've seen various versions of it, but yeah. I'm lucky really enjoying what it is right now because there's no tourists and which is yeah. like, which feels really ironic for me to say cuz I've been the tourist for the longest time. <laughs> uh yeah. uh uh but I'm really getting to enjoy the spaces and uh uh Yeah, I mean there's a lot of places that I can't go inside, but yeah. you know, almost everything is working just on like a low capacity right now. Yeah. Uh the Met's still open, the Central Park's not going anywhere, uh the water's still around, so it's quite nice. <laughs> I'm enjoying That's it. That's awesome. Yeah, I I know. I think I feel the same about Singapore at times. Uh wherein there are just no tourists because yeah. Singapore's been super strict during pandemic. Yeah. And yeah, sometimes it's sometimes it's just just uh, it's just good not to see a bunch of people running around. But then you have your downsides where you can't go anywhere else either in Singapore. Yeah. Not, you know there, there's not many central parks in Singapore. <laughs> yeah. Which is ironic But, uh, because uh, 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 with the Singapore America thing must be interesting because you probably don't know anybody who got covid, right? Um at least in, in Singapore? Singapore? No. Yeah, exactly. I almost almost every single person I know has had covid at some point. <laughs> That's crazy. Cuz America is essentially a developing country with a Gucci belt as a very famous tweet once said. Anyway, uh Edwin, I have so much to talk to you about. Um I think for for people listening in, um I I met Edwin I think back in 2013, 2012. 2012, um, yeah. And I think the last we were in touch were I probably 2013 when I graduated <laughs> and ever since Edwin's gone to do some crazy stuff which we'll we'll talk about in the podcast. Uh but quickly to touch upon and I thought I'll run through a quick intro and then would love to, you know, just just fill in if I if I missed everything. You graduated from college. Um, you should do theater. You should do music. You also studied economics, but I don't think you ever went back to doing any of that. You started off doing Beauty and the Beast, which was, I think, Disney's first, you know, Broadway-style production in India. Uh, I saw some pictures of you on Facebook. I think I don't know. It was I, I don't know if you were on Broadway, but like you were doing like operas left, right, and center. Uh, and most recently, you decided to start a company and and do a TV show. So we're going to talk about all of this. uh in i don't know i hope we can cap this in 60 minutes but we'll try to get to the most of it in 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 the time i think a good place to start 
um, is is Beauty and the Beast, right? You you graduated college in around 2015, and you quickly went on to do do to that uh, production. Um, talk to me about how that happened. Uh, you know, what kind of environment were you in when that opportunity came along your way, and and what made you decide that like I'm going to take this? Man, it was serendipity, is what that was, because uh, I was in economics, right, and uh, I had no idea what I was gonna do with my life, honestly. I I did apply to a bunch of like uh, interviews uh, yeah. with the campus placement cell and everything in college. Oh, I was thinking, like for, oh, I, like... I was thinking I'll be I'll be some kind of uh, business consultant. Uh, if like I can do any cool stuff, it will be it will be marketing. I'll get in the marketing space. I'll figure out what I want to do. And I went to a bunch of interviews. I did a bunch of interviews. I went to a bunch of these like orientation meetings, things that they did. Uh, and it, it, it was sad to me. I, I think the real big thing for me was uh, I think in second year I did uh, uh, an internship with this marketing firm in Gurgaon, and they're really good. Uh, uh, I think it's like a subsidiary of like Ogilvy, so it's like a really good job, right? Uh, yeah. But the problem was I did that job for about like uh, a month and a half or something like that. The problem was every single person around me hated that job. Mm. Uh. I was 19, 20 year old intern, and they were actually yeah. getting me to make the pitch decks that they were submitting to clients. Yeah. I know for a fact that slides I made were viewed by whoever was the person who was coming from Roka, which, uh, uh, which is this like toilet uh, accessories company. And this, these dudes, all that they cared about was literally smoking a joint at the end of the day, and this was something that they were doing to survive. And yeah. it comes from a lot of privilege to be able to say that, but that, that made me incredibly scared. I, I, I was truly just afraid because I didn't want to uh, uh, just skate uh, uh, through life really not knowing what I wanted to do. So because of that and combined with what was how the interviews were going uh, and just the general vibe I was getting, I kind of decided I was going to take a gap year. I was going to try take a gap year i'm gonna try and like figure out this art thing uh throughout three years of college i was doing either shake sock or music sock i was singing yeah. with uh, 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 a band that a couple of people that you've interviewed uh yeah. with a couple of those people i was singing opera with this organization in delhi called the nimrana music foundation so i truly was what you call it stevens and enthu cutlet uh yeah. <laughs> almost to a point where i'm imagining i was incredibly annoying yeah. Uh, so, so, so sorry to cut you off, but for people yeah. who who don't understand Anthu Cutlet, uh, because <laughs> I've I've got some feedback about listeners. I'm like, Ruben, you guys make a lot of inside jokes. I don't I don't get it. Yeah. So, yeah. so Anthu Cutlets for people in in university typically were people who were fresh in university in their first year, who were just excited. They wanted to do everything under the sun, and these guys would you know join all the societies, try to be a part of all these groups and gangs, and yeah, they were just all over the place. Uh, so when Edwin says that he was probably an Anto Cutlet, he was just like trying to do theater, he was trying to do economics, he was trying to do music and all over the place. 
And you know what I wasn't doing very well? Economics. (laughs) (laughs) The very thing which got him into university. (laughs) Uh, That was okay. You know what I mean? Like in India, we don't have the option of having a liberal arts degree. I think people who really respected that Loki were like, Raghu respected it. Raghunathan, who was the head of the uh, head of the department, yeah. he respected that. He and I used to talk about blues music and Shakespeare and things like that. He knew that I wasn't doing any of the any of the work in tutorials. Yeah. Uh, uh, we used to yeah. just talk about Shakespeare, and it was fun. Uh, uh, Benston yeah. sort of like uh, uh, respected that. There were a couple yeah. professors who didn't, <laughs> who didn't really understand I, I, I what I was why. doing, and they l- definitely l- thought l- I was just wasting l- my life. Yeah, l- l- Let's skip those names. <laughs> yeah. But let's skip, so, so sorry, you, you were doing Nimrana, you're doing all of these things. Uh, and you mentioned that serendipitously the, the Beauty and the Beast opportunity came, came by. Like, like, talk to me about that. Yeah, it was an open casting call. Uh, uh, in that, what that means is uh, Disney was auditioning in five separate major Indian cities. They were looking for the cast for this Beauty and the Beast production. Uh, it was the first show that Disney was bringing uh, uh, to India. It was supposed to be this like gigantic arena style tour slash yeah. residency slash type of existence. Uh, and uh, I still remember March 16th, 2015 is when I had my first audition. They asked me to come back on March 19th. They said, when can you come back? We want to see you again. Uh, and... Uh, Almost immediately after that, they they made me an offer. They they said we want to lock this down. Uh, uh, let's figure it out. Uh, when uh, uh, and what happened was, I think May something is when we have our final exams. I gave the exams, and two days after that, I was in Bombay, uh, in rehearsal. Uh, so I was a few days late because I had to give my exams. I literally had to give my exams and then get to uh, rehearsal rooms in Bombay. Uh, it's it's insane that that thing sort of i think there are certain points and certain uh uh, sort of benchmarks and milestones in my life that truly change the trajectory of everything that's happened since then uh beauty of the beast definitely was a major major one because i was always reticent and slightly uh uh slightly risk averse you know i i would never take the kind of risk that a career in the art is if I didn't think that I had the possibility of a real career. And, uh, and, and that was sort of like a gift and a curse at the same time in some ways, because with Beauty and the Beast, I kind of had reached what was the highest level of theater, at least in terms of resources that was being done in India. And there was nowhere else I could go, truly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, and I couldn't do anything else because there just simply wasn't anything else. Yeah, but it also allowed me to allowed me a certain degree of uh, 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 sort of reliability and this understanding that people could think that oh he's good without actually knowing anything about if I'm good uh, yeah. because it's just a marketing thing you know it's yeah. it's they've seen you in times of India and now they assume that you're probably good because yeah. why else would you be there. Uh, so yeah, that truly was one of the things. I'd say Stevens was definitely one of those things because uh, before that I was, you know, in Delhi suburbia. I grew up in Mayur Vihar, which is as Delhi people call it, yeah. Jamuna Par. I don't know if you know what that means. That's on the other side of the river Yamuna, which uh, 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 which has connotations of a certain degree of uh, 
uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, like That's suburbia, sort of like, we're not getting out of here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But Stephen sort of expanded my horizon. Beauty and the Beast expanded my horizon. Yeah. And then I'd say things after that were relatively less of a jump than these two mm. things. So, so talk to me about the, the, the experience. When they made you an offer, like what was the offer about that you would do X amount of shows? Yeah, it was what, a... What does it offer a, look like? Yeah, it was... <laughs> it was the most insane thing because in retrospect, now I know the industry, right? Now I've done this a little bit. I've, I've seen a lot of these contracts. I've interacted with a lot of like producers and things like that. But back then, I just had the uh, uh, the absolute unwarranted confidence of someone who knows nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so so when they were telling me, okay, so we want you for the beast. The thought that I had was, am I sharing this part with anybody? It's just me, right? So that means like I'm doing all of this. So what else does that mean? Like, so what else am I getting? Like, so can I get more money than what you're offering me right now? And in retrospect, I was like, I had... I had nothing to uh, 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 negotiate with, but also I had something to negotiate with because they were clearly they clearly were interested in me, so there was something. Uh, but yeah, the the discussion was uh, essentially, hey, we're very interested in you for this part. This is what it will entail. You would have to move here. Uh, this is how much we can pay you. Uh, 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 this is what the thing is. This is what the show is going to be. Uh, uh, these are the people that we're working with on the show. This is the kind of caliber that these people have had before. A couple of weeks after that, I had a short, like, look test kind of situation in Bombay. They flew me down for uh, 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 just, like, a short little workshop with uh, uh, two of the directors, uh, the candidate that they had for Bell, uh, and they did, like, sort of like a prosthetics test, uh, uh, which the the makeup for Beauty and the Beast is very heavy makeup prosthetics, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's sort of molded to your face. So mm -hmm. I had to like sit down for a couple hours where they put plaster on my face and uh, completely on my face and made a mold of my face. <laughs> it, it was all insane. It was all magical and yeah. and and nothing like I, anything that I'd experienced before. Uh, but yeah. yeah, that's what the that's what the getting it process was. And uh, yeah. so, how, how many shows did you do? Oh, I don't remember at this point in time. I did uh, three separate seasons, and each season was. I don't even remember anymore. I'd say at least like 50 shows I would have done. I, I think 50, wow. 60, maybe even. I don't know. Wow. Uh, in Delhi and, and Bombay. And, got it. And, and when you look back about that experience, what, what was what like what was the hardest part? I'm sure like it was fantastic and mad fun, right? Because it was like doing stuff which you enjoy. But I don't think it was that like it was the first time they were doing it in India. And like I've never seen that size of a production. You know, I, I thought it was I thought it was one of the first. Like, talk to me about the, 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 the challenges you had or the struggles you faced through when you were going through those, those years. Man, uh, the biggest thing is imposter syndrome, mm. <laughs> naturally. And honestly, I better have had imposter syndrome because I wasn't yeah. shit <laughs> yeah. compared to everybody who was there. They, they were all theater veterans, all incredibly talented everything. My, course, my, my colleagues were all amazing. Uh, uh, Literally, one of my colleagues is Amitabh Bachchan. Uh, uh, he was he was the one that does the uh, the uh, the intro like uh, a voiceover thing. Like we had Amitabh Bachchan doing that. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, it's the imposter syndrome. It's uh, the days were rigorous. All of that's fine. I, I remember it started with 
it would often start at 6 37 in the morning with working out we i had like a private uh, trainer that disney had hired uh uh starts with that throughout the day there'd be uh, acting sessions singing sessions dance sessions uh then we'd have a rehearsal in the afternoon uh, 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 which is for the actual show uh, for uh, like three, four, five hours, whatever. Uh, then I would have sort of like aerial wire training at the end of the day, which was because one of the things that they had planned at that point of time was that the final transformation from Beast to Prince or whatever was supposed to happen on, on like an aerial wire. I'd be lifted up into the air. I'd be doing tricks and shit like that. So I trained for all of that. So that's what I was doing uh, so that I don't break my back, literally. So the days would yeah. finish at 10. Uh, so all of that was incredibly hard. Uh, but I'd say the hardest thing was the uh, the imposter syndrome. You The thought that you have that, I mean, do I suck? And it was completely possible. I hadn't done anything before this. So I could have legitimately just slipped through the cracks and gotten where I am. Yeah. And now they have yeah. buyer's remorse and that they feel like they're stuck with me. Uh, yeah. And that was like a consistent thing. I, I truly would say that I don't think, I personally don't think I got good at that show, whatever that means, till at least mm-hmm. show nine, ten, whatever. Like after doing nine shows in front of, I don't know, 3,500, 4,000 people each is when I was like, oh, now I think I might be decent at this. I don't know. Um uh, <laughs> So that's a that's a tricky thing that I feel every every artist any single person who does anything probably feels imposter yeah. syndrome. So so you did that for about two years, fifty shows, uh, three seasons, um, and at some point you decided to stop. Um, how did that happen? Did the I show mean, end? The or? show ended actually. Uh, uh, okay. I think because Disney was learning a lot of things. One. Uh, was that they realized that Beauty and the Beast was a very, very expensive show. And the only way to make back the money that they would spend on it was to do hundreds of shows. And uh, uh, the Indian infrastructure does didn't, at that point in time, support that kind of, the existence of a show like that. And for example, in Bombay, we used to do the show in the NSEI Stadium, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the most expensive venues in India. I, I'm not completely sure, but I think it cost them about, I think, more than 25 lakhs every show or every day or something like that. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, the show had to, like, end at some point, but I also had reached a point where, where I, I was thinking, even if they do another season, I might not be in it because... I want to move on and figure out what I'm going to do now. Like, this can't be my life. And a a lot of performers do that. Uh, They are career jobbers, for example. Especially on Broadway, there are people who'd be on a show like, say, Phantom of the Opera or, like, Les Mis or something like that for decades. Uh, And that's a completely valid way to live. But I I was very, very young. And uh, there were other things that I wanted to do and figure out. I was still figuring it out. I am still figuring out clearly. Yeah. Uh and uh and I think that's 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 okay. And I've been lucky yeah. enough to be able to do that. Like for example, uh I was the youngest person to ever play the role in any production in the world. Oh wow. And talk about like adding to your to your pressure. <laughs> Opening yeah. night, Alan Menken was in the audience. Alan Menken is the eight-time Academy Award 
winning uh, uh, a composer of uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas. And it's it's both amazing and sort of leaves you with a sense of, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and so I had yeah. to, I felt the need to go out into the cold, hard world and kind of figure it out. Ah, I'm just kidding. It was it was great. <laughs> it's been a great journey, but yeah. Yeah. So so after after you finished Beauty and the Beast, um, you decided you you did some stuff in Bombay for a while, and then you decided to go to go to Yale. Um, so talk to me a bit about what what you were doing in between, because you mentioned that you were working with some pretty fancy guys when you were in Bombay, <laughs> both in in theater and music. Uh, yeah, uh, I moved to Bombay soon after because uh, uh, I was still trying to figure out what I'm doing and what I what yeah. it is that I specifically wanted to do. Uh, and, uh, along that time I was still, I still used to every once in a while come to Delhi to do a show with the Nimran Music Foundation. They fly me in to do some show. I'd do that and come back. Uh, I, I don't know. I was just doing a lot of stuff. I was doing, uh, uh, advertisement. I was singing jingles. I sang, uh, uh background stuff for people like Amit Trivedi, Preetam, A.R. Rehman. That was, that was really cool. Uh, I did a play with uh, uh, Motley, which is Nasiruddin Shah's company, theater company. Mm -hmm. It was directed by his son, Imad, who's a very dear friend now. Uh, uh, but through that, there was a lot of intersection with uh, uh, his parents, uh, uh, Nasir and uh, Ratna Patak Shah, who were, in my opinion, absolute geniuses and arguably yeah. the... Uh, uh, he's arguably the greatest actor India has produced. I mean, it's uh, you know what I mean. So it's like a yeah. big deal to me. Uh, but but talk to me about this. You you were doing this, you know, high value, high production, um, you know, Disney stuff, right? Um, and then like all of a sudden, like it, what it feels to me is that you were doing like you know you're doing music, you're doing jingles, ads, like a bit more scattered, right? Yeah. Like, was it deliberate? Were you trying to like branch out and explore, or were you like almost everybody else in Bombay? You take what comes, and you just you know hustle hustle your way through. Honestly, man, I was taking whatever I was getting. Cause truthfully, yeah. in retrospect, uh, when I was doing Beauty and the Beast, I feel like I didn't play my cards right. <laughs> that there was more networking that I should have been doing at that point of time because there was a lot of clout that I had very very briefly around that point of time that i didn't really capitalize on because yeah. honestly i was just worried about doing a good show it it consumed yeah. my entire being i lived that show i literally lived in workout clothes because i was sweating in everything that i was doing and that's all that mattered and soon after that uh again i, I was kind of taking what i got but also not really they were all amazing things and at yeah. very high levels, like where people uh, uh, work hard to get to that point. Yeah. I'm, I have nothing but gratitude. Uh, uh, and if anything, it, it wasn't a big departure from what is my personality anyway, about yeah. doing a lot of things and uh, uh, trying to be a renaissance man of sorts. I was doing cool things, meeting cool people and... Uh, at that same time, figuring out, okay, what is the long-term plan? Uh, yeah. Which is where the school thing comes. Uh, at various points of time, I, I've i had the thought, and I've had the thought from many other people, which was that 
for the very specific things that I I had ability in or I could do well possibly, there wasn't enough avenues in India really. Mm-hmm. If if say the expertise that I was forming was in musical theater, which in America everyone would just move to Broadway. You'd be in New York City. You'd be doing Broadway where you could make that a career and do that for the rest of your life at a very high level. That simply just doesn't yeah. exist in India. After the Beauty and the Beast, there there wasn't theater that I could make more money in, at the very least, uh, even if it was yeah. about money. Uh, and I suppose there was always Bollywood, and that was a route that I could go down, but that's a completely different story. Ironically, the the first movie audition that I got in India was Guy Ritchie's Aladdin, the Hollywood Aladdin. Oh, yeah. Whereas with Bollywood uh, 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 producers and casting directors and things like that, it was it was often a thing of trying to prove that I can speak Hindi, despite the fact that I'm from Delhi, because mm. uh, uh, of my name and uh, uh, my South Indianness or whatever that means, you know. Yeah. So getting out was natural, and while I was there, it made sense to try and do whatever I could because I hadn't put in the time to form a specialization of any kind. Yeah. I was only there for yeah. two years. I did Beauty the Beast for a year and a half. I did I did freelance work for a year and a half. Then I was in America. So I can't even say that that was the case. If I stuck around for five more years, maybe, you know, I would have been in Baggy Seven or whatever it is. That yeah. <laughs> number that we are in the in the in that movie. <laughs> because yeah, like I think you were doing some you were doing such fascinating stuff with Beauty and the Beast and then even with the with the freelance stuff. Uh, working with such amazing people but but you're right and and it's so many people you know including leon um talks about the same thing about how opportunities for people in in i think the creative spaces especially in music is is quite limiting um and then you know moving to the us is is probably like the only you know cylinder of oxygen left if you have to continue like pursuing this career um so tell me about that you you moved to yale to pursue a master's in Opera? Like, what, what was the course he would call? <laughs> yeah, I feel like my life seems really... What the hell was that kid thinking? Um, <laughs> no, uh, bringing back the story of what I was doing in college, I was still singing with this company yeah. called Nirmana Music Foundation in Delhi, right? Yeah. I continued uh, doing shows with them, and uh, they gave me a lot of opportunity because they thought I had great potential in opera, uh, yeah. uh, which is a very specific, very European thing, which is so insane. Yeah. Around that same time, they had been offering me a scholarship to study opera in Paris. Uh, they offered mm. me that one year. They offered me that in the year 2016 or 17 or something. And they offered me the year after that again. I said no both times because I knew that if I went to Paris, all that I would be doing is opera. And opera didn't speak to me in the same way that a lot of other things did. because mm. Simply because I don't have the kind of pedigree in it. I don't have the kind of... Uh, 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 culture embrace where I grew up with it and I f- I'm familiar with it and I consume opera. Like, ironically, the first opera that I ever saw was the first opera I sang in. Like, I sang a role in. So I knew nothing about opera mm-hmm. except that there were people who thought I was good at it. Uh, what I learned around that point of time is that there is a very strong genetic component to opera where you have a certain voice that is uh, biologically suited to singing opera. That's what it is. It's uh, Because in opera singing, you are singing 
unmiked over an orchestra that's often like 80 musicians hmm. with full brass and you are singing over them uh, uh, so your voice has a certain texture timbre all of those things uh, and I had one of those voices apparently and my teachers at the Nimera Music Foundation they, they were of the opinion that I had a rare voice type specifically in opera and therefore they, I could get scholarships so so, 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 le- so let me double click on that you said that for an opera voice is genetic. Yeah. Um, so, and for people who are listening, and the the voice I remember yours, I would say it was, it was like a, a baritone, like it was deep, um, and yeah. it was like, like I, you would beatbox. So I knew you had immense amount of stamina, <laughs> but like my pitch of opera are like high pitched shrilling women, and oh, you yeah. don't compare to that. I mean, no. So, uh, in opera, there's like various voice types and various okay. voice types th- sing at various parts. For example, I am a baritone, but I uh, singing opera is just another style of singing. Uh, uh, in college, you probably heard me singing a lot of funk and blues and rock and roll yeah. and things like that. So in that, the vocal production style is just completely different. Uh, 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 how, how would you explain that to an absolute layman, like the, the opera style of singing? Okay, the opera style of singing, I would say, is utilizing the entire length and breadth of what the human voice is capable of. In, outside of the operatic context, it would feel like overkill. Hmm. That's what it is. So for a baritone, it is the, 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 the richest, luscious low notes combined with a ringing quality in your upper highs. So if you if you play a recording of any famous opera singer like famous tenors like Pavarotti, Caruso, whatever, famous baritones like Korostovsky, uh, 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 any of these guys, you will see that they're utilizing a sound that feels godlike because it in in scope it is something that people in their natural lives just don't use. Mm. There's a deep well of sound and potential inside everybody, and opera singers use that to its full potential. And then, right. like, and then there's a back and forth of how much they use it, how they mold phrases, how they, how they construct lines in their singing. And, and you said it is genetic. So are you saying that some people are born with those, like, that ability to go to those sounds? Or is it something you got to, like, can anybody no, just ability, The no. ability is trained. The ability has to be trained. You mm. have to spend long hours to get good at anything, as is the case with any craft. But yeah. uh, 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 some voices are naturally louder. Some voices mm. are naturally pingy. Ping uh, 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 or squealo is, uh, uh, refers to this sort of ringing-like quality at, at, uh, uh, on certain uh, notes that makes the voice just carry over an entire house. And a person sitting on the last seat will be able to hear the voice as clear uh, uh, as uh, uh, daylight. Mixing metaphors. Wow. Uh, but that's what the thing is. So genetic component, for me personally, was that I, I have a voice that could grow up into something that is called a Verdi baritone. A Verdi okay. baritone is a very specific subset of a baritone where, uh, 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 one, their range is pretty massive, uh, uh, mm-hmm. is wider than a lot of other baritones, and yeah. are, are able to like, have like, a very regal presence of voice at, throughout their range. Uh, uh, and it. has to be kind of loud because uh, uh, the orchestration and variety operas are pretty massive. So yeah. when I was applying to schools, especially applying to schools in America, I applied because, yeah. so again, my intention was I want to be in America. 
because the kind yeah. of career that I'm interested in exists in America. Yeah. Maybe England, but America is just bigger. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I know that if I want to do theater or anything live, New York City yeah. is the place. And New York City yeah. also has like a film and TV industry that's like very old. And yeah. I've dreamed about New York City since I was five, like maybe <laughs> seven. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, so I applied to three New York City schools and two schools right out of New York City that were free. My program is one of them. Uh, uh, so Yale okay. and Curtis is one of them. Uh, uh, all these schools are very, very good. The school is very good. But Yale, for example, accepted seven people every year. Uh, uh, and seven people across voice types. So they would take two sopranos, two mezzos. My year, they took super, two sopranos, two mezzos, one baritone. I was a baritone, one tenor, one bass. Uh, so essentially, they oh, were wow. forming a company of their own that can sing operas, any kind of opera, because they have singers to sing those operas. And uh, yeah, so when, when spots are limited, uh, uh, companies like cast based on what would be a good fit with the other singers and what kind of pieces that they're interested in doing. My school kind of, at that point of time at least, specialized in grand opera, specialized in uh, uh, sending uh, 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 singers to only the maybe top 5% of opera houses in the world. What that means mm. is those opera houses, one, are gigantic, and two, are playing repertoire that smaller houses simply can't. So, for example, if you're singing at the Met, the, I think the capacity is like 4,500 seats. So if you're singing at the Metropolitan Opera, your voice better be able to, you know pay the bill uh yeah so it's a very sp that's that's what i mean by the genetic component it's Got nothing it. but just statistics it just statistically it. happened that i had one of those voices got it yeah so i'm curious to know like you did this for about two years right yeah, like what is curriculum like what does the curriculum look and feel like like what uh, do you do over the two years uh, over the two years, essentially, the Yale School of Music is, uh, at least the opera program at Yale, is very uh, performance-based in the sense that the big draw that it has over other schools is that I sang and I performed in almost every single show that we did in the last two years. And that's considerable. Oh, that means at least, like, three shows a year. Three fully staged, fully costumed uh, shows a year, which is a lot yeah. for anything. So I was just constantly performing. Uh, in addition, uh, uh, I mean, I had classes from everything from music history theory. Uh, uh, I could, as part of, if you go to Yale, you can, if you're in graduate school, you can take classes in any of the Yale schools. Oh, nice. Uh, 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 so that is, again, an advantage a lot of people use. I simply just didn't have the time because our program expected us to be completely free to uh, noon onwards to the rest of the day. Because mm -hmm. I'd have rehearsals, sometimes I'll go on to like 10, 11. Uh, yeah. So I was doing that. And when I had, uh, when I knew that I have a couple of weeks off when I don't have rehearsal at school, I did plays with the Yale School of Drama at the Yale Cabaret. Uh, yeah, I said Yale a lot, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 like a uh, mini, it's like a mini universe. But then first two years, it's, it's a, a life. It's a pyramid so. scheme is what it is. <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's a pyramid scheme marketing embrace. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, that's one way of putting it. Yeah. But so, so yeah, you, you did two years at Yale and, and I think like, yeah, I, I did not know they were so selective uh, about the, the, the like seven people a year. That's ridiculous. Um, and I think what you, you'd mentioned that over these years, you started doing a lot of shows um, and eventually you reached a point wherein you decided that you would start your own company. So talk to me a bit about, you know, life 
now you had gone from beauty in the beach which is like a first time production in india very new they probably figuring out what they're doing to now going to like the heart of like where all this happens right um and then eventually deciding that you would go and do this full time by yourself um talk to me about about like what the shows were um and how you eventually decided to start start a company around this <laughs> uh they're both like completely different things but also not uh but essentially i just try to keep myself engaged at each point of time whenever i had some time free uh either something came up uh, uh to me or i seeked it out and mm-hmm. it just continued you know uh so while i was at yale uh, i mean we had summers off but during the summer yeah. i was taking contracts with uh opera companies and theaters and things like that and these are like professional companies so they were professional gigs that paid me and like sustained me uh and uh so so that's that that was just the gig that I was doing i was used to Got being it. a contract labor i was used to sort of working on someone else's vision i was used to being an interpreter of someone else's art uh, so to speak mm-hmm. uh but uh the company came about because of covid honestly it's part of covid uh because i graduated in 2020 i'm literally batch of oh. covid uh and uh <laughs> ironically i was uh, uh 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 i had a gig which arguably would have been my biggest opera gig in america scheduled for that summer uh uh with this company in new york and it was like a major role debut and things like that and my and uh 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 that's what i was going to be doing but covid literally completely destroyed our industry and uh yeah as everyone knows we'll this industry will be the, one of the last things to come back so around that time i i was talking to my colleagues at uh uh in and around yale and we got talking about a production company and not exactly a production company but a solution to this like the like an economic solution to the artist dilemma where yeah. you if you're lucky you're working jobs that you might or might not like uh, yeah. uh, uh and if you're unlucky you're not making rent and uh in talking about that we sort of like came up with this thing called the midnight old collective which is now the pitch of the company uh which mm-hmm. essentially became sort of which is this uh investment group for arts projects essentially we're all artists who are sort of pooling our resources and networks and contacts and everything to create and support each other's works to essentially scaffold around each other's art projects and uh, right now they're mostly like creator led in that they projects that are being created from thin air for example the mm-hmm. first five projects that we're working on uh, uh, ranges from a musical a musical theater piece uh the tv show that i'm writing which is sort of like a half hour comedy drama there's a children's cartoon there's an academic paper which uh which supports us in other ways and uh, uh there is a uh, uh, sort of this music school essentially but this like online curriculum for teaching music uh but the idea is that we get together and support each other in with money and uh with sort of dramaturgical work essentially working on each other's projects and supporting it and grazing it in a certain way uh so just as an example the tv show that i'm writing when we started writing it uh, uh in june 
and we've now finished uh, the pilot. We are submitting it to a bunch of pilot competitions. We have finished a pitch document. We, uh, we are currently in the process of shooting a proof of concept, which will be then used to sell and pitch the show to uh, uh, studios, essentially. Uh, yeah. The hope is that, you know, HBO sees it and they're like, okay, we want to make this show. Yeah. Uh, and that's what the thing is. Uh, we've been very lucky because uh, uh, there's like strong, it's not exactly anti-capitalist, but anti-capitalist sentiment in the collectivization of resources like this. And the yeah. hope is that uh, eventually this grows into sort of like a worker cooperative, but with artists, uh, where it. everybody owns a piece of the company. Uh, mm. And the eight of us who started it just happened to be the first members. That's about it. We were accepted to two business accelerators, uh, and uh, so that went zero to 100 real quick because we got a lot of scaffolding around the work yeah. that we need to be doing to build a company and whatever yeah. that entails. Uh, through that, we got a lawyer who thinks that worker cooperatives are the future of capitalism in America and, it, and offered to work for us pro bono, offered to help us oh, wow. form our company pro bono. Uh, and uh, not just that, we have... Uh, we got like an initial seed funding of about like almost a million dollars, which we are now trying to figure out where to effectively use. Yeah, it's a uh, it's business work. <laughs> and and uh, you know uh, the the ironic thing, uh, 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 my girlfriend, uh, she uh, uh, she was at business school in Yale, and that's how we met. She was yeah. joking the other day that ironically, you might have become a very good candidate for the top business schools right now <laughs> because like think about it i'm 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 an and uh, i'm an artist engaging in new ways to do business like i will 100%. be the diversity hire for a school now <laughs> and i'm not sure if your girlfriend has already told you but that even if they take you it's probably not worth it but you didn't hear that from ruben <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, no i'm not i'm not quitting because if I go to business school, that means I've quit on my arts career, which I truly know. Yeah. Uh, and, more, uh, and some more debt. And I have no debt. That is my oh. biggest gift. I have no debt because uh, Yale School of Music is completely funded by this one billionaire who gave the school $100 million in the, in the knots. Uh, and I won an Inlex scholarship, which paid for my living expenses. Oh, wow. That is my so biggest superpower. That's, that that's my biggest flex on American people that I don't have student debt. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's actually pretty cool. Like because all of the people I know who moved to the U.S. have this big thing on their head right now. Of, you know, you yeah. got to pay back the loan, but that must be so so like liberating not to have that. Honestly, dude, yeah, that that is the only thing. That's my biggest like privilege that allows me yeah. to dick around in New York City. Uh, sorry for the language. Uh, 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 <laughs> is that I, I I can afford to be broke. Yeah. I mean, I'm not yeah. thankfully, uh, but you know. I can afford yeah. it, and that's a that's a big gift. Yeah, uh, you you mentioned a while earlier that about the pandemic, and it just hit me. You're right. The the theater uh, industry is probably one like one of the industries which are which are worst hit. Talk to me about like what's happening in theater. Like I'm sure you know a lot of people in the industry. Like wh like what are the like what are people doing? How how are they getting by? Um, Man, nothing's happening. Honestly, uh, every single person that I know, uh, if they were in the arts. Uh, if you're very, very lucky and you had like some kind of producership, some kind of uh, a direction work, then 
you possibly continue to draw some kind of salary from the theater or anything like that. But for artists, either you're living off your savings or to, if you're American, you're allowed to work like jobs. Like, like I know people who are doing every kind of job to make it work. Uh, uh, so when Broadway shut down, it was, it's at least shut down through fall this year. Uh, so when it stopped, it completely stopped. Uh, yeah. Some there have been some jobs that have come up in like a digital way. For example, I'm doing uh, sort of like a musical theater slash opera piece, which is going to be like a film, uh, which I'm shooting from my apartment. So that's something. But mm-hmm. uh, that's nothing. It's it's truly truly scary. Uh, and what that results in is incredibly high rates of uh, like attrition. Like people will just leave. Uh, mm-hmm. No, yeah, it's not great. It's not great. Yeah, which is which is again that's that's the thing which was the big thing behind Midnight Oil Collective in that in the long term we are looking to in some small way fix the economic problem of the arts, which is something that nobody discusses because you're as artists most people our are most people are encouraged to not be financially or uh, economically literate. You mentioned you're encouraged not to be financially literate. The messaging is almost that. Oh, art is everything. You should be just like focusing on the work. But nobody talks about like, how am I going to make rent? Yeah. Like these programs that I'm talking about, and this is at the top level. This is at the top level. America produces, I think, definitely more than five, at least 50 or 5,000, five or 50. That's a big difference, but uh, take what I'm giving you. Uh, uh, Number of uh, graduates in the arts world and the majority of them have massive debt what they're not told at these schools is that the jobs don't exist yeah so what what educational capitalism is trying to tell you is that you should get this degree and that will enrich your life in some way but what it fails to tell you is that it doesn't unless you just happen to be one of the very 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 few people who's successful enough doing it or makes it work uh and and that's why i mean encouraged to not be financially literate if you were to look back and like wish for things you had known you know a couple of years ago when you were starting out on this journey in in theater and music like what would those be (laughs) i don't know man i'd say trust the process trust the process and do the work like what I would mean by that is keep on hustling, keep on looking for things, keep on looking for avenues, see where you can insert yourself uh, yeah. <laughs> respectfully and uh, see how you can be of service, see how you can, how you can learn and uh, find avenues for yourself because you can't trust another person to do it for you. And then while you do this, uh, recognize that you will never be where you think you should be. But know that that's just, that's just what it is. That's life. And uh, uh, that's something that I've been, I struggle with a lot is how to be satisfied. Uh, if yeah. someone has, uh, has a solution to, be, to satisfaction, hit me up. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, f- Figure out a way to be content with where you are, but never, yeah. never really uh, stagnant. Hmm. 
And and what advice would you have? Would it be the same advice, or would you have some other advice for somebody who's just starting off their their career in in the arts? Oh, One man, of I'm... them, please be financially literate. Yeah, <laughs> or don't learn do it. About I'm just <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, please be financially literate is a big, big one. But like more than financially literate, I, what I mean by that is consider the alternative. Consider the possibility that your dreams don't all immediately come true. What then? Hmm. Uh, and I think, I, I, and I, and I might be a hypocrite in saying this because, like any challenge that I've faced in my life, honestly, to me, objectively, is nothing compared to the immense gratitude that I should be experiencing at every moment of life. But. Uh, at, I, I do want to say that at each point of time, I've had an exit strategy. At each step, uh, uh, climbing whatever ladder, whatever steps, whatever is the allegory that you want to use, I've had an exit strategy. And I continue to what's, have an exit strategy. What's your exit strategy right now? Right now, my legitimate exit strategy is business school. Like, it will be a big pivot. I will change my entire marketing around it. I will make it sound like I am the... Uh, 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 I am I am the disruption that the business world has been looking for, uh, um, and uh, uh, I have I have a mental essay running in my head. Uh, I have a plan for uh, getting just a high enough uh, GMAT score uh, and letting my background support the rest. It's it's terrible, but like it it allows me some respite yeah. in knowing that that I'll be fine. I'll be fine, even if none of this works out. And hopefully yeah. it does, you know, and hopefully it continues to work out. Yeah, I think that's that's really good advice. I think having a plan B doesn't really mean that you're not convinced about plan A, but I think it just gives you that that at least that mental peace of mind that if this yeah. does not go, given it's so damn uncertain, like everything yeah. else is, it's just not putting all the eggs in one basket. So, so I love that. I, I love the fact that you said you always have an exit strategy. Uh, and that's got me thinking about my exit strategy right now, which is none. <laughs> but uh, but that's amazing. Don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't love what I'm doing. I am incredibly 100%. happy. I am yeah. I am as happy as can be. Uh, uh, I'm incredibly self-aware of all the gifts that I have and all of those things. And let me tell you that like, if I have to quit, it would take me years to recover from it. I would never, yeah. like, it would take me years before I'm able to go to a show in my new life as a non-artist and not think, like, yeah. I might never recover, but uh, it's nice to have a plan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And it is, it is a practical way of doing things. You're right. I think the arts sometimes paints the picture of it being, like you said, it's all about the art. But you're right. At the end, you have a house, you have bills. And as life progresses, you have many other things to deal with. Yeah, so, I mean, I've killed those just, at like every good, level. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Ashton yeah. Kutcher is a multi, uh, multi-millionaire <laughs> who now is a multi-multi-millionaire because of his like tech investments. Like, Correct. You know, the, the human beings are multifaceted. And the most important thing is working out what works for you. Yeah. And that's always unique because it's not one size fits all. Yeah, that's awesome. I think this is a good point to wrap up. I usually ask people if they have one question for me. Uh, so Edwin, do you have a question for me? I've asked yes, you so I many. I, I was going to like ask you this conversation even as an aside, but uh, uh, 
so recently I was offered this like play which uh, was about the immigration situation in Singapore uh, and uh, there was a large part of the politic of that play was about uh, the the subtle I mean and often not so subtle racism faced by the non-Chinese majority I wanted to like ask about your experience being a brown man being an Indian man in yeah. and a foreigner uh, in Singapore and do you feel like people treat you as quote unquote an expat or quote unquote an immigrant yeah that's a really good question uh, let me answer the second one first so so yeah I, I would say I feel more like an immigrant than an expat for sure um, and on the first one see I think Singapore is a, a majority Chinese um um country right it's it's like i think it's about 60 70% um ethnically chinese but you know i think i i don't think there is that form of of like racism as you would probably experience in the in the united states um for a couple of reasons i think number one is i think the government is super super particular about making sure that there's like racial harmony um so and and they like enforce it right so they'll make sure that there's a good mix of people across even housing um so yeah th- there's never any like violence against communities like there's just no bad things happening <laughs> but at the same time there is some weird and i was reading this book about just the singapore political landscape where people openly say you know is singapore ready for a non chinese president or a prime minister and nobody gives a straight answer basically the answer is no <laughs> they're not ready for it <laughs> So so I I I won't call it like racism in the common definition of what the world calls racism about like what's happening with with say blacks or or you know people of color in 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 the U, in the US or with all of the immigration stuff in Europe and things like that but it's a weird kind of you know we are like they're not all equals right um, on paper yes they are you know there will never be any discrimination on paper but as a society are we ready to you know accept a, a non chinese Prime Minister, yeah. uh, probably not. Have you ever felt like any kind of unconscious bias on the part of your employers or like people that can mm. do something for you? Because that's what the play was about, uh, about yeah. the the Indian person not doing well from that thing. So I was really curious yeah. about what is the yeah. experience being a. I think I think it's just natural human tendency. So yeah. nowhere is it explicit, but like I'm sure you see this in the US, right? If you're in a you know indian ethnic majority company hmm. they have a tendency to hire more indian ethnic origin yeah. if you're in a chinese firm they'll probably hire more chinese so on and so forth um but yeah like like the the laws are very strong um so nobody can get away with like messing around singapore does seem to have a singaporean identity like i'd say the yeah. american identity now is changing into the identity of the the international uh, 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 metropolis that it is now the american identity yeah. is in some weird way the immigrant identity uh yeah in a way that i guess singapore is different yeah yeah singapore that way is i think that the singaporean identity is pretty strong the the flip side is that i think singapore as a culture there's not much culture in it right because the country is what 50 years old um it it sort of pieced together from from malaysia a lot of culture from like the, the south, south india um china so as culturally there's nothing much 
or there's not much of like you know singaporean culture but what they pride themselves is like you know like we've essentially taken swamp lands and marshlands to be to become one of the best you know whatever city states in the world and that's the singapore identity um and again that's that's very like multicultural because since day one they wanted it to, to be to be like to be such awesome i think that's a good place to wrap up i know we are slightly over the hour edwin thanks a ton man it, it was it was a lot of questions but i it's it's so fascinating I, i've been always curious on how you know you went into theater into music and i was just like going through your facebook and i'm like man this guy's like killing it but just hearing from you and and your journey so far has been so super fascinating so thank you so much for sharing thanks dude thank you for having me and that's a wrap thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the podcast if you've been enjoying these conversations do subscribe and leave a review if you have a suggestion topics or even people that i should speak to do write to me you can find me on twitter at norona ruben if you'd like to support the podcast you can now buy me a coffee you can find the link in the description I upload new episodes every Friday and I'll see you in the next one.